Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you are here in person or on the live stream, we want to offer you a very warm welcome. We are thrilled you have chosen to worship with us. If you are here for the first time and you are a visitor, we offer a very warm welcome to you. We hope you got a goodie bag, what I like to call a bag of swag, as you came in that contains some. I think pretty cool stuff and allows you the opportunity to get to know us a little bit as we desire to get to know you. I'd like to ask everybody, this is whether you are a visitor or a longtime member or attender, to fill out the friendship pads that are before you. They're in the beginning of the aisle here. So if you're seated, seated at the end of an aisle, it's your responsibility to get them started. You didn't know we come here to church and I make you work, did you? And then your job is to get them started, pass them down to your friends down the aisle, and it lets us know who is here. And hopefully, you even say, it's in the name, Friendship Pat. We want to become your friend. Now, I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't wish all the moms out there a wonderful and blessed and happy Mother's Day. And so, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms and grandmoms and great-grandmoms, we are thrilled to honor you. And one of the things I like to do on some of these days, like a Mother's Day, is I want to honor and acknowledge and celebrate all women because we're very aware Mother's Day may be hard for some of you for a variety of reasons, and I won't go into all of the reasons. But Jesus sees you, and friends, we want to see you as well. That's part of our heart here, and so we want to do that. Uh, several different announcements. New beginnings continue. You know, I came in this morning and I'm like, something's different about this. We're not doing the Lord's Supper with these little prepackaged things anymore. And so I said to some of the elders as, you know, here I've been a year. I've been here a year. This month, I came May of 2021. This is the first time we'll be doing the Lord's Supper. And I think it's been a little over two years for all of you where we do it, quote unquote, live the normal way. The elders will be passing out the elements, all of, all of that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself this morning when I wake up, what if I mess up one of the logistics? I'm not. And then I reminded myself of what I'm preaching on this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I felt free. Church is the place for messing up, and I'm the chief messer-upper. But how thrilling it is, how rich it is that we have the opportunity to partake together of the Lord's Supper, and it is certainly our desire and our hope that you've prepared your heart as this sacrament is the sacrament where Christ feeds us with himself. One other thing I want to point out to you in the way of announcements, we have an insert. I've been talking, and this is kind of, you might be asking, why is Jeff talking about this Realm app every week? 
Is he kind of trying to shove it down our throats? No, no. But it's one of those things as we come out of COVID and we're looking for ways to connect. This is technology. This is a gift God has given to us. And so we have an insert that gives. So that way, if you're tuning me out right now, good, it's written for you. Everything I've been saying the last several weeks is written down right here. Take it home and you can read it. It shares what Rome is. It's a ministry tool that using technology allows us to stay connected to each other. That's why the second thing, why do we, why are we, and I won't say pushing it, why are we promoting it? Because it strengthens church connections. It's a way if you are, for instance, a ministry team leader, okay? So Russ Murray is the team leader of the worship ministry team, and he wants to connect with the members of his worship ministry team. He can go right on Realm, email everybody from within the team. You ought to look at the women's ministry. They do this. They're getting A-pluses right now in terms of Lynn, through the roof. I've seen the communications. It's perfect. But it's a way to straighten. You have the church directory on it. If we all use it, and here's the simple instructions, and they are simple. Computers will not hurt you. I make that promise. Push any. This is why I use computers. You can push any button, and you can't break a computer. Just push anything. But this gives you the instructions of exactly what to push, and you're in great shape. So all the instructions are right here. So, friends, those are just some of the things going on in the life of the church as the prelude, as Mary leads us in the prelude. And what a, I'm grateful, Mary, for you doing that this morning. Let's focus our hearts and prepare our hearts for worship.
Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 98, verses 1 to 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Lord, may we join in singing to you a new song, singing to your glory, to your strength, to your majesty, to your splendor, for your right hand and your holy arm have worked salvation for you. Lord, may we praise you and glorify you, and we invite you into this sanctuary that we may love and behold you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let's stand and sing together this great hymn of the faith, The Church's One Foundation.
may be seated. There is just something about what I'll call those classic hymns of the faith. I'm always struck by some of the words in them, and this one just really hit me. In the very final stanza, mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Maybe that speaks to me because I know how hard I'm always performing, how hard I'm always trying to be in control, how hard I'm always striving. And you know what we're striving for? Whether it's me or anybody else, we're striving for rest. Because rest is not, I'm just going to take a nap. Rest is that spiritual sense that we're okay, we're at peace. We suffer, we lament, life is hard, but we have rest. We have peace with God, we have peace with ourselves, we have peace with others. It makes me think in terms of confession of sin, we always need to confess the ways we're trying to earn our rest rather than work and live from our rest. Our need of confession this morning comes from Psalm 53, and recognize that in the language of wisdom literature, there were three types of people that they were always talking about. The evil person, the fool, and the simpleton. And here is the psalmist saying, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In Pauline language, in the language of the Apostle Paul, this would be the description description when he refers to the flesh. He is not talking about our skin and bones or physicality. He is talking about our corruption, the corruption of human nature that we all share. Friends, I want to invite you to a personal time of confession of sin. Engage with God. Do business with God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Receive his forgiveness. And then in a few moments, we will pray together the corporate confession of sin. Let's pray. Friends, let us pray together this corporate confession of sin in unison. O God of grace, you have imputed our sin to our substitute and have imputed his righteousness to our soul, clothing us with a bridegroom's robe, decking us with jewels of holiness. But in our Christian walk, we are still in rags. Our best prayers are stained with sin. We need to repent of our repentance. We are always going into the far country and always returning home as prodigals, always saying, Father, forgive us 
and you are always bringing forth the best robe. Grant us never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. Amen. The assurance of pardon comes from Psalm 32, verse 5. King David, confessing his sin, says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, if we're honest before the Lord and simply forsake our sin and confess it before God, the promise of the scripture is that he forgives us as far as the east is from the west from all our sins. Our sins have been imputed to Jesus. His righteousness has been given and imputed to us. Hallelujah. Let's stand and sing together the new tune of Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me.
Let's continue to hide ourselves in the refuge, in the rock of ages, that is Christ Jesus our Lord, as we go to him now in a time of prayer. We will pray together the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in a pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. God, you are our refuge and strength, and ever-present help in trouble. May we truly hide ourselves in you as our fortress, as our tower, as our strength, as our rock, as our deliverer. May we seek you with all our hearts. As the psalmist says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so may my soul pant after you, O God. And so, Lord, we pant after you that we would rejoice in you, that we would worship you, that we would live for you, that we would honor you. Father, we ask that you would help us enlarge our hearts, that we may understand the beauty of your holiness, the wonder of your grace, the power of your salvation. We pray for any in attending here, in our community, in and around our area who do not know you. We pray, Father, that they would come from death to life, come to know Christ as Savior, that we would see new conversions made, that that would become a more normal thing, that that would be something we pray for and something we seek and something we pursue. We're mindful, Father, to pray for those who are struggling. And we know that not all struggles are physical. We pray for those who are undergoing various treatments, undergoing various surgeries, undergoing recovering from different things. We do remember those who are afflicted physically, but we also remember those who are hurting emotionally, those who have suffered loss, those who have suffered trials of various kinds, as James puts it. Lord, as Jesus, you taught us to pray for our daily bread that is so much more than physical. We need to have the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies touch our hearts in very real ways. We need to have you close. And so, Lord, with a desperate dependence, we cry out to you. From wherever we are, we bring our whole selves to you. We bring our joys, but we bring our hurts. We bring our happiness, we bring our sorrows and our laments. We cry out to you, the living God. You are the bread of life, Jesus. Give us today our daily bread. We look to you in a desperate dependence that you would feed us with yourself. Father, as we approach your word in a few moments and come to your table, we just thank you for the wonder of grace. We pray that you would open our hearts to the truth of your word, and it wouldn't just be academic truth, but it would be truth that's living and active, that would pierce our hearts, that would comfort us, would challenge us, would teach us, that mind and heart holistically we would worship you and be transformed. Father, thank you for this time, as we sang earlier, mystic, sweet communion for those whose rest is one. We enjoy that communion 
We pray for that communion. We pray as we continue to worship in the giving of our offerings. In Jesus' name, amen.
may be seated. Carlton, that was amazing. Thank you. I feel like I need to take a deep breath. Anybody else? I just feel like you take all of that in, and now I'm like, I'm supposed to preach. <laughs> I feel like I need to take a deep breath. That was wonderful. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity now to approach your word and to worship you in this way. And we hold on to your promise that your word does not return empty or void. It will accomplish what you have purposed and set out for it to accomplish. And so with that, we just give you thanks and we depend upon you. And we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope to which we have been called. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have finally made it. How many of you have been excited saying, he's getting close to Romans 8? We're at the base of the mountain, Mount Everest. We have whatever, I was never a mountain climber, by the way. So we have whatever our gear is called, whatever that is, rappelling or all that kind of, we're strapping on our gear, we're at the base of the mountain, and we're ready to scale the heights of these 39 verses of, you get it, or I'm calling it the Mount Everest of the Bible. We are climbing the heights of, and we begin in verse 1. Hear, friends, the word of the Lord that says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, I feel like mic drop right after that. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. I cannot believe, I've been here one year, this week, this month, the talent that is in this church just blows me away. Whether it's Amy in the choir every week, Carlton, and Mary, where did Mary go? She's got to be still here. There she is over here. I'm not going to embarrass you, Mary, but that was wonderful. And it makes me think of something about myself. I regret that when I was younger, I did not take up music more. Yes, in fifth grade, I took drum lessons, and I was in whatever they called the band. And I think it was more to annoy my parents, just making noise in whatever side room we have. You know, it's kind of like you have to take an instrument, you have to take music class. What, cl what instrument are you going to do? Ha, I know drums. Make a lot of noise. I enjoyed doing that. I discovered very quickly didn't have a lot of talent. You know, I'm the definition when it comes to sing. I've never been asked to sing in a choir. Don't ask me. That. I'm the definition of make a joyful noise. I'm good at that. I sing in the shower. I wish my wife... My son, they are uber-talented when it comes to music. Joel taught himself how to play guitar, picking up all of those things. Now, why do I bring that? Because Romans 8, not only can it be like described as climbing Mount Everest, but it's also like a spiritual symphony. As a matter of fact, Johann Sebastian Bach, in his cantata named, and I'm going to give you the English translation of it, because I can't also translate the other languages, Jesus, my joy, 
was based on and had as its background Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8 is all about two things. It is all about how to experience God. Not just know theological abstractions. Not just know the academic information, but to actually experience God and to do so through the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to help us experience God. Dane Ortland in the book Gentle and Lowly that we've been going through in our adult Sunday school says that the Holy Spirit's function, the Holy Spirit's main role is to help us feel the heart of Christ. And Romans 8 is a tremendous treatise, if you would. What Paul is doing is he's talking about how to experience God through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's two pitfalls that we need to avoid in approaching Romans chapter 8. How can we avoid the two pitfalls, the twin pitfalls, of on the one hand feeling like, this is all too familiar, I've heard this all before. This is, you know, okay, we're going, there's therefore now no condemnation, and we get to the effort, I'm convinced in either height nor death. How do we get that it's not old hat, so to speak? Or on the other hand, focus too narrowly on all the particular verses. Bach would have put it, and I've read commentators who've put it this way, how can we hear the symphony, not just the notes? Because Romans 8 is a symphony, and we're only beginning it this morning. It will build up over the next six weeks until we get to the crescendo of verses 31 to 39 that says, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Anybody need that right now? Anybody feel like, wait a second, I'm not feeling a whole lot of God being for me. See, we need to hear the symphony. And one of the things we have to remember is that Romans 8, and specifically... Romans 8, 1 to 11, that we're looking at this week and next, lie at the very heart of Romans 5 to 8, this section we've been looking at as a whole. Remember, we've been looking at the fact that the gospel is a new exodus. We're free from our Egypt. We've been liberated from our Egypt of sin and death. That's why I titled this sermon, The Gift of Freedom. That was Romans 5 and 6, but then Romans 7, Paul is alluding back to the story they would have heard of, and the issue is the law. What do you receive at Mount Sinai but the law? And Romans 7 ends with, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then verse 25, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then he goes right into, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Here's what I want you to realize about the spirit. The spirit is the giver of life. The spirit is the one who breathes life into his people. Jesus and the spirit do what the law could not do. So in other words, in fulfilling the exodus... They bring us to the promised land. Romans 8 is all about journeying 
to your final salvation, the inheritance, which we will discover is a new creation through the wilderness, led by the Spirit. So what is the job of the Holy Spirit? Tim Keller puts it, the Holy Spirit's job is to show us and convince us that nothing can separate you from the love of God. That he can't lose you, and therefore you can't lose him. To the degree that we don't understand that, our life is defective. Oh, we may be Christians. You can be a Christian without understanding or really knowing this. You can be a Christian without experiencing it. But God wants you to experience that. And he's given you the Holy Spirit to unite you to Jesus, to indwell you, to not lead you like he led the saints in the Old Testament externally, but to indwell you internally and lead you to union with God. So let's take a look at these opening verses, verses 1 through 4. And remember, we're only beginning this week. We're taking step We're not even that high up on the mountain. We're, not, we're barely going to make it through the first movement of Bach's cantata. We're just barely starting. But let's ask, ask ourselves the question, what is Paul, what are we learning in these opening verses about experiencing God through the work of the Holy Spirit? We will learn the assurance of a reality that's based on a reason that is designed for a result or a purpose. In other words, we need to know three things. You need to know the reality, know the reason, and know God's intention, know the purpose. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Notice the Exodus language there. Has liberated you. Has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But look with me at verse 1. You notice what word it kind of begins with? What word is there in the beginning? That word, therefore. And the word, therefore, always refers back to what preceded it. So when Paul goes, there is therefore now no condemnation, he is cluing you in as a reader or as a hearer of this. Look back. There is therefore, based on what? Therefore now what? Well, based on what? Chapter 7. And think about this. I called this point the assurance of a reality. Why am I calling it the assurance of a reality? Well, what was chapter 7 all about? It was about the struggle of a Christian. It was about our struggle. That even though the Christian is dead to sin, is a new creature in Christ, sin still remains with him. There is the very practical struggle with the reality of indwelling sin. Remember the end of Romans chapter 7, verse 21? I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil lies close at hand. It's right there with me. It's not letting up on me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, which is, by the way, as commentators spill a whole lot of ink, is Paul in this autobiographical experience, a Christian, a non-Christian. I side with the commentators that say he must be a Christian here because a non-Christian could not delight in God's law from his inmost being. A non-Christian, Paul says in Ephesians 2, is dead in his trespasses and sins, and someone who's dead cannot delight in their inmost being, mind, heart, soul, in the law of God. And Paul here is saying, I delight in God's law, yet, boy, do I struggle. 
I struggle with sin. He used the example of coveting in Romans chapter 7. The example could be anything in our lives. Insecurity, comparisons, anxiety, worry, anger. Anybody have a problem with anger? I could drive down the road with any of us. We'll discover here. That could be the diagnostic test, right? See if we have an issue with that. Lust, greed, whatever it might be. And so Paul is talking about the practical struggle with sin of a believer. I'm a Christian, and yet life is hard. I want to do good, and yet evil is right there with me. And so Paul is coming in. This is intensely practical. He says, even though I still struggle with sin, there is therefore now no condemnation. He says, you are going to go under unless you understand this. In the teeth of your continual struggle against sin, in the teeth of living within the reality of sin and death that is all around us, you have to know this incredible truth. This is the thing Christianity is all about. This is for those whose rest is one. We're not striving for rest. The rest has been won. What does this mean? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to realize this is a legal term. I'm going to teach you a little Greek here. I don't do this every week. But I think it's important you learn a little Greek here. The Greek word that's used here is katakrino. And katakrino is a compound word. You all understand your eighth grade English, right? It means two words coming against. Kata means against. Krino means verdict. Put them together. Katakrino means verdict against. A judgment, a verdict or judgment against. And Paul is saying, there is therefore now no katakrino, no verdict against those who are in Christ Jesus. No judgment against, no verdict against the person who is in Christ. No more punishment. God has forgiven you. He's taken the punishment himself. He has canceled the debt. And most of us say we understand or believe this. And I kind of go, do we? Because this doesn't simply say that we are no longer condemned. It says something much, much stronger. It says there is now no condemnation. It doesn't exist. The verdict of the last day has been brought forward into the present. And there is therefore now no condemnation. See, I want to try to get practical. How is it that we live? See, typically, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, we become Christians and we feel joy. Ah, the burden's been lifted. I'm a Christian. I'm forgiven. We're not condemned. We move out. We move out into the world. We try real hard to live the Christian life, whatever that is, by the way. A lot of versions of what people say that that is. But we try to live the Christian life, and then what happens? When I want to do good, evil is there right within me. So we fail, and we feel condemned. And so we confess our sins. We repent, and we feel forgiven, no longer condemned. Then we go out again, and we sin again. We fall again, condemned again, and we get in this cycle. Tim Keller says it's like plucking flowers. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. But listen to what Paul is saying. He is saying there is no more condemnation. This is radical. Condemnation for the Christian does not exist. 
That means you go out and you try to live the Christian life. He loves you. And you blow it. And he loves you. That could be too radical for a lot of us, can it? We go, hmm, what's going to be the incentive? What's the point then of confessing sins? Jeff, you contradicted yourself. You had us confess sins earlier in the service. Why in the world did you do that? Well, I didn't do that, and we don't do that each week because somehow we've sinned, and we're out, and we need to confess to get back in. That's not Christianity. Once in, you're always in. But what happens when you sin? We break relationship. We violate relationship. Okay? What happens... Now, I'm putting pressure on myself with this illustration. What would happen if I forgot to call my mother this afternoon wishing her a happy Mother's Day? Would she kick me out of the family? No. But if I forgot, what would confession be all about? To restore relationship. To restore what's not lost. Relationship is still there. I'm still her son. She's still my mother. But I would need to restore that friendship so that there would be freedom there. There would be love there. There would be no more barriers there. We confess sin. See, so often we act in the Christian life like he loves me, he loves me not. He lo it's like doing a dance. Instead of he loves me and I sin, and I've broken the heart of my lover. I've broken the heart of my best friend. I've broken the heart of my heavenly father. And I repent joyfully. See, here's a question for you. How many of you have joy in your repentance? How many of you, when I come to that part of the service and I say, here's our need of confession, you're going, yes! Or are you going, oh boy, he does this every week. I can't wait for him to forget this one week. We're not believing the God. You're not believing. There is therefore now no condemnation. See, how would we be different if we would realize this? We need to recognize this is the foundation for all Christian joy. We would be more free. We would be more secure. We would be less defensive. Let me just give one example. I think we'd have less comparison that we have if we believe there is therefore now no condemnation. My good friend who's a PCA pastor up in Baltimore, Mike Kanjian, said this about human comparison. He says, human compare, and I put it, you have this, you can take this home. It's in your reflection for this morning. He says, human comparison is a poison we drink for all the wrong reasons, and it always kills. It kills relationships, it kills friendships, it kills memories, and it kills from the inside out. The secret to enjoying God's fatherhood is not in pretending that we deserve it, which always leads to unhealthy, ego-driven, self-loathing, but instead to remember who we are and how deeply God loves us in Jesus. The Father's love for Jesus means that I don't have to pretend that I'm worthy. I am loved because of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free. You are free. Are we living free or not? Let's move on to the second point. How do we know this? The second thing we need to know, you need to know the evidence. You need to know the reason. 
you need to convince yourself. We're very good at doubting these truths. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I'm going to be very brief here. What could the law not do? He says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What could the law not do? The law could not give life. It could offer. It makes a promise. Do this and you will live. That's an offer. That's a promise. But it cannot deliver. And why can't it deliver? It's not the fault of the law. The law reveals the heart of God. The law is perfect because it's weakened by the flesh, because of the flesh. And remember the flesh, again, is not our physicality. The flesh here is that part of us, that rebellious and corruptible state of humankind. It's that within us that opposes God. It's that within us that causes us to be the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. That's why it says all have turned away. All have become worthless in that sense. So that's what the law could not do. What did God do? What did God do? First of all, it tells us that what he did was he sent his son to become human in the likeness of human flesh. Although Jesus never sinned, he became like us, subject to our weakness, subject to our temptation, like us in human flesh. And second, he became a sin offering. It says he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, when Jesus died, it wiped out the debt by Jesus paying it himself. That is why if we're feeling condemned, if we're embracing and taking shame upon ourselves, we are refusing to believe the truth of this verse. The very practical thing that we need to do is preach to ourselves the evidence that God has condemned sin in the flesh. See, we're always preaching to ourselves evidence of some kind. You might be preaching the evidence to yourself of what your parents said or what a friend said about you or what a spouse says about you or an employer or what you say about you. You know, every time we're doing this, we are preaching to ourselves. We are the best at talking to ourselves. How often do we talk to ourselves? There is therefore now no condemnation. I am presented to God above reproach. Shame has been lifted because it was tattooed upon Jesus. So there's no condemnation for the Christian. If I am condemning myself or feeling condemned, I am believing that there is somehow condemnation left. And that means I'm somehow believing, this is the evidence I'm believing, that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. That Jesus' work on the cross was somehow insufficient. Why all of this? What is God up to? God's intention, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God's intention is that the righteous verdict of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
not by the law, but by the Spirit who gives life. N.T. Wright, one commentator on this passage, says, The life the law intended, indeed longed, to give to God's people is now truly given by the Spirit. The Spirit indwells God's people in Christ as the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament indwelt the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. See, the Spirit does now in this age of the history of redemption what the cloud and the fire did in the wilderness. Going back in our community Bible reading, remember as we were going through the Exodus and all the times in the wilderness, what the people of God were told to do? Watch that front door. See that cloud hovering over it during the daytime? If you see that cloud lift, march. Move forward. It stops, you stop. If it's at nighttime and it's a fire and it lifts, walk. But it was all external, right? It was all external. What could it not do? It didn't impart life. Where does the Holy Spirit live now? Inside of us. Indwells us. Not as a visitor. It's not like we're Motel 6 with leave the light on. He is there permanently leading and guiding. That's where the legal becomes personal. The Holy Spirit is the key to experiencing God. And that's why the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. He is the key to actual holiness in life. I love how Tim Keller put it. He says, this is the greatest possible motive for living a holy life. That whenever we sin, we are endeavoring to frustrate the aim and purpose of the entire life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. If this doesn't work as an incentive for a holy life, nothing will. Which leads me practically, why are we always trying to change ourselves and change one another by the law? We're always like, oh, I can change if I just follow these principles. And the Holy Spirit is here going, um, excuse me, am I chopped liver? Why don't you walk with me and I will lead you to experience and to feel the heart of Christ. And that will change you. See, the bottom line is I don't really think we trust. We say we trust. Do we really trust the Spirit and Jesus and the promises of the gospel? Because the promise of the gospel, God has said it. He began, verse 1, with a therefore. There is therefore now no condemnation. That kind of freedom, rather than living, leading you to live an autonomous life, its intention is that the righteous requirement of the law not as a set of behaviors to do, but to have a comportment and a disposition and a heart that is given over to love God and love people will be fully met in you who walk not according to the flesh, who walk not according to that principle that is within you to oppose God and rebel against God, but according to the Spirit who leads you to feel the heart of Christ for you. Oh, friends, this is only the beginning. We've only taken one step up the mountain. This is the first movement of the symphony. But the Holy Spirit is the key to experiencing God, and life in the Spirit is all about the Spirit convincing and showing you that nothing can separate you from the love of God. That is His business. That is His work. That is what 
will change you. Let's pray. Father, I praise you so much for your work, the work of Jesus, the work of the Spirit, giving life that we could never do on our own. Father, I pray now, even as we come to the table, Holy Spirit, you will be active in our midst, uniting us to Christ, that we may feed on him who offers himself to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I invite us to stand. We're going to sing the first three stanzas of this great hymn of the faith, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? And as we're doing so, I invite the elders who are helping to serve the elements to come forward.
The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does it mean to do this in remembrance of me? This is a service of covenant renewal where God, through Jesus and his spirit, is feeding us with himself to strengthen us in grace, the only thing that will renew us, the only thing that will change and transform us. And as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, when we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. He talks about recognizing, discerning the gift of the body, which means who may partake of the supper. Those who are baptized believers and a part of any gospel-preaching, gospel-believing, evangelical church are invited to come to what is a family meal. Jesus is the host of the table, and this is his hospitality where he's offering you himself to strengthen us. You may be sitting out here and saying, well, I'm not sure yet if I believe. Well, let me give you this invitation. The only thing you need is need. Admit your need and say, Father, Receive me, accept me because of Jesus. Love me because of Jesus. And guess what? Welcome to the family. It's hard to fathom. It's that simple, isn't it? Sometimes the simplest things are often the most challenging. Be like, as Jack Miller would say, the earth drinking in the rain. What does the earth do when it rains outside? Last time I looked, kind of nothing. It just receives it, and all of a sudden, you see fruit. Receive the rain. Receive these elements used by God for their supernatural purpose. And somehow, you don't even have to look. All of a sudden, fruit shows up, like love, gentleness, maybe even patience. How about that? Wouldn't that be something in terms of covenant renewal? We became a patient people. Let's pray, setting apart these elements for their holy use as we partake together. Father, we ask now that you would be with us. We ask now that you would feed us with yourself and that we would receive you by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Use these elements for their intended use. In Jesus' name, amen.
body of Christ broken for you. Father. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after taking bread and breaking it, he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same manner, our Savior took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you give us these tangible ways, Father, for which we praise and exalt you to taste and see your goodness. That what the law could not do in our lives, you did by sending your son Jesus in the likeness of human sinful flesh, condemning sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us, your people. You see us and you view us as law keepers. May we go from this place living that set apart holy lives, loving you and loving one another for the sake of Jesus Christ, who has purified us as his bride and his people for himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's close our service singing the last two hymns of N. Can It Be? Let's stand together. Friends, now receive the Lord's benediction as you are blessed by the Lord. May you leave this place and go out from here to be a blessing to others. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.